Welcome to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, where we are committed to providing our community with voices of conscience from an ethical perspective. My name is Tim Hart Anderson. I'm the senior minister here at Westminster Presbyterian Church on Nicollet Mall in beautiful downtown Minneapolis, and I will be the moderator of today's forum. If you are listening to us on Minnesota Public Radio, we welcome you and we invite you to visit us in person in the future. Details about upcoming forums can be found online at eWestminster.org. We also invite you to contact the Minneapolis Public Library for information about a dialogue to be held in response to this forum one week from today on Thursday, October 9th at noon. It is a privilege to welcome to the forum today award-winning New York Times journalist and author Chris Hedges. Mr. Hedges has been a foreign correspondent for 15 years. Prior to joining the New York Times, he did reporting for the Christian Science Monitor and National Public Radio. He spent a number of years based in the Middle East and has covered crises in many of the world's most volatile locations, including El Salvador, Nicaragua, Algeria, Iraq, Sarajevo, and Kosovo. In 2002, Mr. Hedges received the Amnesty International Global Award for Human Rights Journalism. He was also a member of the New York Times team covering global terrorism that won the 2002 Pulitzer Prize for explanatory reporting. Mr. Hedges' perspective has been sought throughout the media and he has lectured at numerous institutions including Harvard, Yale, Columbia, and the Council on Foreign Relations. He is lecturing at Princeton this year. Chris Hedges holds a BA in English Literature from Colgate University and a Master of Divinity from Harvard University. He served for a time in the Presbyterian Church. His scholarship informs his experience of human conflict. In his first book, War is a Force That Gives Us Meaning. That book was a finalist for the National Book Critics Circle Award, and we've asked Mr. Hedges to highlight some of its themes here today. He's also written a second book entitled What Every Person Should Know About War. The reality of conflict can be so traumatizing as to make action in any direction seem ill-advised. And yet, as nations and as individuals, we inevitably find ourselves called upon to act under terrifying circumstances. We have invited Chris Hedges to share with us his thoughts on making ethical decisions when to do so seems impossible, when all options seem like bad ones. Ladies and gentlemen, please help me to welcome to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, Chris Hedges. Thank you very much. Um, it's a great honor to be here. Um, I grew up in the Presbyterian Church. My father was a Presbyterian minister. Uh, I was, as you heard, a seminarian. I had a church for two and a half years in Roxbury. I finished a Master of Divinity, uh, although I was never ordained. I told my uh, candidates committee when I finished Divinity School when they asked me what my call was that I was going to go to El Salvador and be a freelance reporter during the war. And there was this long pause, and the chairman of the committee said, we don't ordain journalists. My poor father was seated outside the room in his clerical gallery. He still paid for lunch. Um, but I'm certainly informed by the church, 
informed by my theological education and my upbringing. Um, my closest friend at the New York Times, Steve Kinzer, said, I'm not really a reporter, I'm just a minister pretending to be a reporter. Um, and I also want to um, tell you how privileged I feel to be able to speak uh, to the audience at Minnesota Public Radio without question, one of the great public radio stations in the country. You're all immensely fortunate, and I hope you all cherish what you have. Before I begin, I just want to speak very briefly about this book that I finished called What Every Person Should Know About War. I did it with a group of veterans, uh, combat veterans and two combat surgeons. We spent uh, our very small advance on a research team that took over a corner of Bob's library at NYU. And we modeled it at a book, on a book that came out uh, after World War I, where we took the kinds of questions young men and women who engaged, are engaged, or about to become engaged in combat, often asked but never get answered. Um, the last third of the book is all footnotes. It comes primarily from military and official sources. And we try and ask those questions in a way in a very visceral and a very personal way. I mean, for instance, what will the army do with my body when I die? Will I be afraid? What does it feel like to get wounded? The last thing we did, which did not endear me to my agent, was to go down to the publisher's office and argue the price down. Uh, they were gonna sell it for $15. We tried to get it down to 10, we got it down to 11, because we wanted kids on minimum wage to be able to buy it. And I'm just gonna read you one selection to give you a taste of it. This is a question, what will happen if I am exposed to nuclear radiation but do not die immediately. The Office of the Surgeon General's textbook of military medicine states, and I quote, fatally irradiated soldiers should receive every possible palliative treatment, including narcotics, to prolong their utility and alleviate their physical and psychological distress. Depending on the amount of fatal radiation, such soldiers may have several weeks to live and to devote to the cause. Commanders and medical personnel should be familiar with estimating survival time based on onset of vomiting. Physicians should be prepared to give medications to alleviate diarrhea and to prevent infection and other sequel of radiation sickness in order to allow the soldier to serve as long as possible. The soldier must be allowed to make the full contribution to the war effort. He will already have made the ultimate sacrifice. He deserves a chance to strike back and to do so while experiencing as little discomfort as possible. I have spent most of my adult life in war. I began two decades ago covering the wars in Central America, where I lived for five years, then seven years in the Middle East, and finally three in the Balkans covering the war in Bosnia and later Kosovo. My life has been marred, let me say deformed, by organized violence that year after year was an intimate part of my existence. I have watched young men bleed to death on lonely Central American roads and cobblestone squares in Sarajevo. I have looked into the eyes of women kneeling over the mutilated bodies of their husbands. I have stood in warehouses with rows of corpses, including children, and breathed death into my lungs. I carry the ghosts of those I worked with, my comrades now gone. I have seen how war deforms individuals, communities, and nations, and that deformation, that brutality, drew me too into its embrace. We as a nation are trapped now in a bloody war of attrition in Iraq. 
We have blundered into a country we know little about and are caught between bitter rivalries and competing ethnic groups. Iraq was a swamp for the British in 1917. It will be a swamp for us as well. We have embarked on an occupation that, if history is any guide, will be as damaging to our souls as it will be to our prestige and power and security. We have become tyrants to others weaker than ourselves, and we believe falsely that because we have the capacity to wage war, we have the right to wage war. Once you master a people by force, you depend on force for control. Isolation always impairs judgment, and we are very isolated now. Read Antigone, where the king imposes his will without listening to those he rules and dooms himself. Or Thucydides' history. Athens' expanding empire saw it become a tyrant abroad and then a tyrant at home. The tyranny Athens imposed on others, it finally imposed on itself. As William Butler Yeats wrote in Meditations in Times of Civil War, we had fed the heart on fantasies, the heart's grown brutal from the fair. It is 1967 in the West Bank and the Gaza Strip, and we have become Israel. Our empire has expanded. We have become pariahs. We are propelled forward not by logic or compassion or understanding, but by fear. We have created and live in a world where violence has become the primary form of communication. We have built an alliance against terror with Ariel Sharon and Vladimir Putin, two men who do not shrink from gratuitous and senseless acts of killing in the Israeli-occupied territories and Chechnya. We have become the company we keep. Much of the world, certainly the Muslim world, one-fifth of the world's population, most of whom, I will remind you, are not Arab, see us now through the prism of Iraq, Palestine, and Chechnya. And this prism, these injustices, are ones that are igniting the dispossessed and deteriorating by the hour our own security and safety. The attacks on the World Trade Center illustrate that those who oppose us, rather than coming from another moral universe, have been schooled well in modern warfare. The dramatic explosions, the fireballs, the victims plummeting to their deaths, the collapse of the towers in Manhattan were straight out of Hollywood. Where else but from the industrialized world did the suicide bombers learn that huge explosions and death above a city skyline are a peculiar and effective form of communication? They have mastered the language we have taught them. They understand that the use of indiscriminate violence against innocence is a way to make a statement. We leave the same calling cards. We delivered such incendiary messages in Vietnam, Serbia, Afghanistan, and Iraq. It was Secretary of Defense Robert McNamara who in the summer of 1965 defined the bombing raids that would kill hundreds of thousands of citizens north of Saigon as a means of communication to the communist regime in Hanoi. 
The seduction of war is insidious. It appears to be a way to eradicate our enemies, to banish from the world of the living those who would do us harm. And at a time when we are afraid, it gives us a false sense of power and safety. Of course, we never saw war. We never saw war in the coverage in Iraq. The press masked for us the essence of war, which is death. As in the Persian Gulf War, the coverage was presented as a game, as entertainment. Commentators on the cable news channels reveled in the power and might of our weaponry, and by extension, our own power. We watched neatly packaged video clips fed to the press by the war makers. We were spared the pools of blood, the agony of the dying on the other end of our weapons systems. It was clean and neat and tidy and wildly out of context. There was the technological capacity to show us war. We could have watched live footage of an Iraqi soldier with his legs blown off by an anti-tank mine in the sand, something I saw in the first Persian Gulf War, but such coverage would hardly have boosted ratings, hardly have wanted us or made us want to wage war. We were fed the myth, the myth the press almost always feeds us in wartime. We were kept from seeing. There was no more candor in Iraq or Afghanistan than there was in Vietnam, but in the age of live satellite feeds, the military has perfected the appearance of candor. We have, as a nation, lost touch with the essence of war. After the defeat in Vietnam, we became a better country. We were humbled, even humiliated. We asked questions about ourselves we had not asked before. We were forced to see us as others saw us, and the sight was not always an attractive one. We were forced to confront our own capacity for atrocity, for evil, and in this we understood not only war, but ourselves. But this humility is gone. The good name of war has been resurrected. It began under President Reagan in Grenada and Panama and culminated in the Persian Gulf War. We were led to believe in the same way the doomed empires of the late 19th century believed that our technology could make us invulnerable, a lie sadly unmasked as I speak today in the streets of Baghdad. War is the pornography of violence. It has a dark beauty filled with the monstrous and the grotesque. The Bible calls it the lust of the eye and warns believers against it. War gives us a distorted sense of self it gives us meaning. It creates a feeling of comradeship that obliterates our alienation and makes us feel for perhaps the first time in our lives that we belong. War allows us to rise above our small stations in life. We find nobility in the cause, feelings of selflessness, even bliss. And once in a conflict, the shallowness of much of our lives becomes apparent the fruitless search to find fulfillment in the acquisition of things and wealth and power is laid bare. The trivia that dominates our airwaves is exposed as empty chatter. War allows us to engage in lusts and passions 
we keep buried in the deepest, most private interiors of our fantasy life. It allows us to destroy not only things, but human beings. In that moment of wholesale destruction, we feel the power of the divine, the power to revoke another person's charter to live on this earth. The frenzy of this destruction and when unit discipline breaks down, or there was no unit discipline to begin with, frenzy is the right word. Sees armed bands crazed by the poisonous elixir our power to bring about the obliteration of others always delivers. All things, including human beings, become objects, objects to either gratify or destroy or both. And almost no one is immune. The contagion of the crowd sees to that. For Simon Ville writes, is as pitiless to the man who possesses it or thinks he does as it is to its victims second it crushes, the first it intoxicates. And those who have the least meaning in their lives, the impoverished Palestinian refugees in Gaza, the disenfranchised North African immigrants in France, even the legions of youth and the splendid indolence and safety of the industrialized world are all susceptible to war's appeal. I do not miss war, but I miss what it brought. Could never say I was happy in the midst of the fighting in El Salvador or Bosnia or Kosovo, but I had a sense of purpose. And this is a quality war shares with love, for we are also able to choose fealty and self-sacrifice over security for those we love. This is why war at its inception looks and feels like love, the chief emotion war destroys. We are tempted, maybe even encouraged, to reduce life to a simple search for happiness. Happiness, however, withers if there is no meaning. The other temptation is to disavow the search for happiness in order to be faithful to that which provides meaning. But to live only for meaning, indifferent to all happiness, makes us fanatic, self-righteous, and cold. It leaves us cut off from our own humanity and the humanity of others. The ancient Greeks understood the perverse attraction between love and death in wartime. When Achilles kills Penthesilea, the queen of the Amazons in the Trojan War, he falls in love with her as she expires on the battlefield. He murders love, and once he murders love, he himself is doomed. He courts death. We feel in wartime comradeship, and we confuse this with friendship, with love. There are those who will insist that the comradeship of war is love, the ecstatic glow that makes us in war feel as one people, one entity is real, but this is part of war's intoxication. Think back on the days after the attacks on 9-11. Suddenly, we no longer felt alone, we connected with strangers, even with people we did not like. We felt we belonged, that we were wrapped in the embrace of the nation, the community. In short, we no longer felt alienated. As these feelings dissipated in the weeks after the attack, there was a kind of nostalgia for its warm glow. 
Wartime always brings with it this comradeship, which is the opposite of friendship. Friends, as J. Glenn Gray points out in his book, Warriors, Reflections on Men in Battle, are predetermined. Friendship takes place between men and women who possess an intellectual and emotional affinity for each other. And many of us will admit that we never really had a friend, and even the most fortunate of us have very few. But comradeship, that ecstatic bliss that comes with belonging to the crowd in wartime, is within our reach. We can all have comrades. The danger, the external threat that comes when we have an enemy does not create friendship, it creates comradeship. And those in wartime are deceived about what they are undergoing. And this is why once the war ends, these comrades again become strangers to us. And this is why after war we fall into despair. In friendship there is a deepening of our sense of self. We become through the friend more aware of who we are and what we are about. We find ourselves in the eyes of the friend. Friends probe and question and challenge each other to make each more complete. They draw the secrets out of each other and know that inner core of being. In comradeship, the kind that comes to us in patriotic fervor, there is a suppression of self-awareness, self-knowledge, self-possession. Comrades lose their identities in wartime for the collective rush of a common cause, a common purpose. They are like erotic lovers. In comradeship, life is ecstatic and corporate as opposed to friendship where life is singular and individual. In comradeship, Gray reminds us, there are no demands on the self. This is part of its appeal and one of the reasons we miss it and seek to recreate it. Comradeship allows us to escape the demands on the self that is always part of friendship. And this is why once the war is over, once the danger that linked us together is past, these feelings vanish. In wartime, when we feel threatened, we no longer face death alone, but as a group, and this makes death easier to bear. We ennoble self-sacrifice for the other, for the comrade. In short, we begin to worship death. And this is what the God of war demands from us. Think finally of what it means to die for a friend. It is deliberate and painful. There is no ecstasy. For friends, dying is hard and bitter. The dialogue they have and cherish will perhaps never be recreated. Friends do not the way comrades do love death and sacrifice. To friends, the prospect of death is frightening. And this is why friendship, or let me say love, is the most potent enemy of war. We do not see war in the images of war presented to us on the television and films and novels or in the mythic narrative the government spins out for us. The war is carefully packaged the way tobacco and liquor companies package their own poisons. The titillation is there, but in doses we can digest. The reporters in Iraq gave us a war that had a coherency and logic it never has in battle. We tasted a sliver of war's exhilaration in those images but always from our zones of safety. And this war, like all wars, came complete with manufactured heroes, 
feel-good stories about our own and an enemy that was always painted as barbaric and uncivilized. War is part of the modern industrial landscape. Indeed, its tools are often the cutting edges of technology. By World War I, we had created ways in which thousands of people who never saw their attackers could die in an instant. And weapons that carry out this impersonal mass slaughter are beautiful. They are crafted, sleek, and harbor within them awesome power. The machines of war, the planes, the tanks, the heavy machine guns, the huge hulking howitzers and helicopters are pieces of art. I've seen them at work. They are angels of death streaking through the sky. I was with a unit of guerrillas in El Salvador when some Huey helicopters raced in over a lake to hunt us down. We hid in the ruins of an abandoned village, darting from wall to wall and standing with our backs to the shattered bricks so our hunters could not see us as they passed low overhead. As I looked up at these machines that were trying to kill me, I found them seductive. Once in a conflict, once we live in the midst of the fighting, we are moved from the abstract notions of war to the real, from the mythic to the sensory, no soldier after a few seconds of combat believes in the myth of war anymore. This is why wounded Marines jeered John Wayne when he visited them in a hospital in World War II. When this move takes place, we have nothing to do with a world not at war. The world, when we return to it, is viewed from the end of a very long tunnel. There they still believe. There they do not understand. We feel different, wiser, greater. And this experience is so overpowering that if we can control our fear, we go back to seek it out again. War is addictive. Indeed, it is the most potent narcotic invented by humankind. First time I was in an ambush was in the Salvadoran town of Suchitoto. It was a dreary peasant outpost made up of stucco and mud and wattle huts off the main road. The town was surrounded by the Farabundo Marti National Liberation Front rebels, who when I arrived in El Salvador were winning the war. The government forces kept a small garrison in the town, although its relief columns were frequently ambushed as they ambled down the small strip of asphalt surrounded by high grass. It was one of the most dangerous spots in the country. The rebels launched an attack to take the town. A convoy of reporters in cars marked with TV and masking tape on the windshields hightailed it to the small bridge that led to the lonely stretch of road to Suchitoto. We stopped for the familiar ritual of getting high, something as a print reporter who could scramble to safety I did not do, but something the photographers who would have to stand and take pictures found a necessary balm to their nerves. Then we moved down the road, the odd round fired ahead or behind us. We made it to the edge of town where we ran into rebel units, now accustomed to the follies of the press. On foot, we moved through the deserted streets. The firing from the garrison became louder as we weaved our way to the siege that had been set up. Then as I rounded a corner, several full bursts of automatic fire rent the air. Bullets hit the mud wall behind me. We dove into the dirt. The rebels began to fire noisy rounds from their M16 assault rifles. The scent of cordite filled the air. Rebels around me were wounded and crying out in pain. One died yelling in a sad cadence for his mother, his desperate and final plea cutting through the absurd posturing 
of soldiering. At first, his cries haunted me. Soon, I just wished he would be quiet. Firefights seemed to go on for an eternity. I cannot say how long I lay there. It could have been a few minutes. It could have been an hour. Here was war, real war, sensory war, not the war of movies and novels. It was horrifying, confusing, numbing, nothing like the myth I had been peddled. I realized at once that it controlled me. I would never control it. In a lull, I made a dash across an empty square to find shelter behind a house. My heart was racing. Adrenaline cursed through my bloodstream. I was safe. I made it back to the capital. Like most war correspondents, I soon considered the experience a great cosmic joke. I drank away the fear in a seedy bar in downtown San Salvador that night. Most people, after such an experience, would learn to stay away. I was hooked. Drawn into the world of war, it becomes hard to escape. It perverts and destroys you. It pushes you closer and closer to your own annihilation, spiritual, emotional, and finally physical. During the war in El Salvador, I worked with a photographer who covered the war, had a slew of close calls, and then called it quits. He moved to Miami to take pictures for one of the news weeklies. But life in Florida was flat, dull, uninteresting. He could not adjust. He soon came back. From the moment he stepped off the plane, it was clear he had returned to die. Just as there are some soldiers of war correspondence that seem to us immortal, and whose loss comes as a sobering reminder that death has no favorites, there are also those in war who are locked in a grim embrace with death from which they cannot escape. He was frightening to behold, a walking corpse. He was shot through the back in a firefight and died in less than a minute. Taste enough of war and you come to believe the Stoics were right. We will, in the end, all consume ourselves in a vast conflagration. The job of killing allows our senses to command our bodies. The killing whips fighters into greater orgies of destruction. Hedonism and perversion spirals out of control. In war, we deform ourselves, our essence. We give up individual conscience, maybe even consciousness, for the contagion of the crowd, the rush of patriotism, the belief that we must stand together as a nation in moments of extremity, to make moral choice, to defy war's enticement, and to defend love can finally be in wartime self-destructive. War is necrophilia. This necrophilia is central to soldiering, just as it is central to the makeup of suicide bombers and terrorists. The necrophilia is hidden under platitudes about duty and comradeship. It waits, especially in moments when we seem to have little to live for and no hope, or in moments when the intoxication of war is at its pitch to be unleashed. When we spend long enough in war, it comes to us as a kind of release, a fatal and seductive embrace that can consummate the long flirtation with our own destruction. A year after the war in Sarajevo, I sat with Bosnian friends who had suffered horribly. A young woman, Liliana, had lost her father, a Serb, who refused to join the besieging Serb forces around the city. She had been forced a few days earlier to identify his corpse. The body was lifted, the water running out of the sides of a rotting coffin from a small park for reburial in the central cemetery. 
She was emigrating for Australia soon where she told me, I will marry a man who has never heard of this war and raise children that will be told nothing about it, nothing about the country I am from. Liliana was young, but the war had exacted a toll. Her cheeks were hollow, her hair dry and brittle. Her teeth were decayed and some had broken to jagged bits. She had no money for a dentist. She hoped to fix them in Australia. Yet all she and her friends did that afternoon was lament the days when they lived in fear and hunger, emaciated and targeted by Serb gunners on the heights above. They did not wish back the suffering, and yet they admitted these may have been the fullest days of their life. They looked at me in despair. I knew them when they were being pounded by hundreds of shells a day, when they had no water to bathe in or wash their clothes, when they huddled in unheated apartments as sniper bullets hit the walls outside. But what they expressed was real. It was the disillusionment with a sterile, futile, and empty present. Peace had again peeled back the void that the rush of war, of battle, had filled. Once again they were, as perhaps we all are, alone, no longer bound by that common sense of struggle, no longer given the opportunity to be noble, heroic, no longer sure what life was about or what it meant. The old comradeship, however faults that allowed them to love men and women they hardly knew, had vanished with the last shot. Moreover, they had seen that all the sacrifice had been for naught. They had been, as we all are in war, betrayed. There was a 70% unemployment rate. They depended on handouts from the international community. They knew the lie of war, the mockery of their idealism, and struggled with their shattered illusions. A year later, I received a Christmas card. It was signed, Liliana from Australia. It had no return address. I never heard from her again. But many of those I worked with as war correspondents did not escape. They could not break free from the dance with death. They wandered from conflict to conflict, seeking one more hit. By then I was back in Gaza and found myself pinned down on another ambush. A young Palestinian man 15 feet away from me was shot through the chest and killed. I had been lured back, but felt none of the old rush, just fear. It was time to break free, to let go, to accept that none of this would or could or should come back. I knew then that it was over. I was lucky to get out alive. Kurt Shork, brilliant, courageous, driven, could not let go. He died in an ambush in May of 2000 in Sierra Leone along with another friend, Miguel Gilmoreno. His entrapment, his embrace of the death instinct was never mentioned at the sterile and antiseptic memorial service staged for him in Washington. Everyone tiptoed around it, but for those of us who knew him, we understood that he had been consumed. I worked with Kurt for 10 years, starting in northern Iraq, literate, funny, seems the brave are often funny. He and I passed books back and forth in our struggle to make sense of the madness around us. His loss is a hole that will never be filled. His ashes were placed in the Lions Cemetery in Sarajevo for the victims of the war. I flew to Sarajevo and met the British documentary filmmaker Dan Reed. It was an overcast November day. We stood over the grave and downed a pint of whiskey. Dan lit a candle. I recited a poem the Roman lyric poet Catullus had written to honor his dead brother. 
by strangers' coasts and waters, many days at sea, I come here for the rites of your unworlding, bringing for you the dead, these last gifts of the living, and my words, vain sounds for the man of dust. Alas, my brother, you have been taken from me. You have been taken from me, and by cold chance turned a shadow, and my pain. Here are the foods of the old ceremony appointed long ago for the starvelings under the earth. Take them. Your brother's tears have made them wet. And take into eternity my hail and my farewell. It was there, among a few thousand war dead, that Kurt belonged. He died because he could not free himself from war. He was trying to replicate what he had found in Sarajevo, but he could not. War could never be new again. Kurt had been in East Timor in Chechnya. Sierra Leone, I was sure, meant nothing to him. Kurt and Miguel could not let go. They would be the first to admit it. Spend long enough in war, and you cannot fit in anywhere else. It finally kills you. It is not a new story. It starts out like love, but it is death. War is the beautiful young nymph in the fairy tale that when kissed, exhales the vapors of the underworld. The ancient Greeks had a word for such a fate, ekpyrosis. It means to be consumed by a ball of fire. They used it to describe heroes. Thank you, Chris Hedges. You are listening to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, originating from Westminster Presbyterian Church on Nicollet Mall in downtown Minneapolis. I'm Tim Hart Anderson, moderator of today's forum. Our guest is award-winning journalist and author Chris Hedges, who has just spoken on some of the themes of his book, War is a Force That Gives Us Meaning. While the ushers here in the sanctuary collect questions from our audience at Westminster, we would like to remind our Minnesota Public Radio audience that forums are free and open to the public. For information about upcoming forums, you can visit us online at eWestminster.org. We also invite you to contact the Minneapolis Public Library for information about continuing the dialogue about the ethics of war next Thursday, October 9 at noon. If you would like to listen to Chris Hedges in person, he will also be speaking this evening at 7 p.m. at the St. Lawrence Catholic Church and Newman Center in Minneapolis. The Town Hall Forum would like to thank our sponsors, including the General Mills, Kellogg, Star Tribune, Nash, Baker, and George Family Foundations, as well as Skyway News. We're also grateful to our many individual donors. Thank you all for your generosity. And now, Chris Hedges, if you will return to the pulpit, we will begin the questions. First one is about the criteria of the ethics of war. Is there one set of criteria that we can use to assess the ethics of waging war, or do the criteria shift with the circumstances? I, I don't think that a nation 
ever has a right to wage war unless there is a direct and credible threat to either their people or their security. Um, I do want to differentiate between intervening uh, to stop genocide, uh, which I supported in Bosnia, in Kosovo. I think we failed as a nation by not intervening in Rwanda. I think indeed we have blood on our hands for it. If there's any lesson you learn from the Holocaust, it's that when you have the capacity to stop genocide and you do not, you are culpable in some way. Um, so I think that, uh, but those are primarily policing actions. It's not really war. Uh, I think that war is such a poison um, that at times societies have to ingest that poison um, in the same way that a cancer patient must ingest a poison to survive. But if they don't understand the poison that war is, that poison can kill them just as surely as the disease. So that war, um, in the end I'm not a pacifist, but war is always tragic, always deforming, and must always be a last and final resort. You said that love is the greatest enemy of war, and yet, in your book, War is a Force That Gives Us Meaning, you said you are not a pacifist because war is sometimes a necessary response to conflict. Can nonviolence, the action of love, be used as a response in place of war or instead of war? The problem is that I've been in situations, one thinks of Sarajevo, where the Bosnians who lived in that city were completely surrounded by Serb forces bent on their annihilation, and this term ethnic cleansing, which you all know. Um, and one can understand why, uh, when you are surrounded by people who are trying to exterminate you, you would use force to defend yourself. The tragedy, of course, is that once that happens, the worst elements of the society rise to the top. It were the gangsters, the mafia, the criminal class that organized the first defenses of the city. And when they weren't busy shooting at Serbs, they were busy looting innocent Serb families, stealing, looting, running prostitution rings, killing off rivals, and everything else. Wartime, and the longer war goes, it's, it's why it's more dangerous, um, gives uh, power to those who have a propensity towards violence, a propensity to kill. Um, so I think that there are times when human beings don't face much of a choice. I, I will say that in, even in the midst of war, one feels the power of love. When the shells would come into Sarajevo, the moment when death's sting was at its height, the bodies eviscerated and broken, dismembered, uh, relatives would come and paw through the crowds that had gathered around looking for their husbands, their brothers, their children, and you could feel palpably radiated out in almost concentric circles that death and love almost battling each other in the cosmos. And let me finally say that in wartime, those who have the greatest ability to resist the intoxication of war are couples who find in themselves meaning, wholeness, identity, and are much less uh, prone to uh, searching for that in the, the narcotic that is war. And that's why, in almost all cases, when we go back and look, for instance, at those who rescued Jews in Europe and those who rescued other ethnic groups, other ethnic minorities in Bosnia, they almost always were couples. Could you please comment on the term war in the widely used phrase, war on terrorism, and the media's wholesale adoption of that phrase? Well, one of the things that I've noticed and, and I tried to work out in my book is this uh, fact that in every wartime society there's a kind of hijacking of language. We speak in the cliches and aphorisms the state hands to us in wartime. The war on terror being one example of that. And when 
you allow those cliches to define the way you speak, it becomes very hard to express whatever disquiet you feel, to speak outside the box. I'm reminded of Othello at the end of the play, the most eloquent man in Venice, consumed by jealousy and turning before he kills Desdemona towards the audience and saying, goats and monkeys. And I think in wartime, we all speak in a kind of gibberish, which makes clear thought difficult, if not impossible. We saw that in Bosnia. I see it with Islamic militants. The feelings are real, but they, almost, they seem almost only capable of speaking to you in the cliches which they have been handed, which have been pounded into our own brains on 24-hour cable news networks. Um, so uh, when, uh, when we talk about the war on terror, one of the most frightening aspects of this is that it creates a state of war with a very ill-defined goal. It's not war. It's war against a concept, a never-ending war. And having lived through societies that have spent years in war, every year there is a further deterioration um, because democratic societies by nature are fragile and delicate. And, um, and, I, and I sense with Afghanistan, Iraq, and who knows what's next, that it's a bit like 1984, where we, we wake up every morning, we pick up the paper, and we're at war. It's just the enemy changes, so the object of our animosity changes. Um, uh, is war of the particular province of men, one of our listeners wants to know, do women have a diluting effect on our propensity to wage war? Should the draft in its uh, openness to including women have an effect eventually on our uh, capacity to wage war? Well, one of the things we learned in doing this book that I read from at the beginning, what every person should know about war, is we went back and, and looked at the, the army has used uh, psychological studies and knows how to get you to kill. I mean, they use operant conditioning, the same thing you use to train a dog. And um, there is, according to the research, uh, a natural tendency among 98%, if I believe the figure right, of men and women against killing. And you have to overcome this natural desire not to kill. Um, but it can be overcome. And I've certainly seen conflicts where women kill as viciously as men. Uh, certainly in Rwanda, in the massacre in Rwanda, women were using machetes and killing uh, alongside of men. Uh, so that I feel that, you know, the, the, the great dividing line is often between those who have children and those who don't. I was a war correspondent without children and I was a war correspondent with children. And I was a very different war correspondent after that. Um, and for me, um, you know, obviously the, because of the, the way societies are set up, um, women fall more readily into the maternal role, but I think anybody who falls into that parental role never looks at war the same, and I, and I uh, mention in the, in the book, War is a Force That Gives Us Meaning, about a, a friend of mine, a Muslim uh, father in Bosnia, who was, uh, they had moving in on a Serb suburb, he heard a noise behind a door, he fired his rifle, and he killed a 12-year-old girl, and he had a 12-year-old daughter, and um, he never recovered from that. He could barely leave his room. So that I think that, um, uh, that it, it, it's that parental role that begins to wake us up to the brutality and horror, horror of war. One of our listeners asked what your advice would be to a young person about to become a member of the military. You might add the, the twist if it were your own child. I would, um, when I, my father, as I said, was a Presbyterian minister and was involved in the anti-war movement. When I was about 12, he told me that if uh, the war was still going when I was 18, he would go to prison with me. I have this vision of sitting in a jail cell with my dad. 
Um, uh, I would refuse to serve in Iraq, and uh, in the same way that that Israeli soldiers, uh, the refuseniks, have refused to serve in the occupied territories. Um, y you know that uh, one must make moral choice, but then. In a, in, a, in a society that we want to improve and we want to get better, one must be willing to pay the consequence for that moral choice. Um, so that's what I would do. If truth is indeed the first casualty of war, if the military has perfected the, the manipulation of the media, does that make your own war reporting, or mine from Vietnam, the questioner asks, a futile exercise? Is there such a thing as honest and accurate war reporting? I don't know if it's futile, but we spend a lot of time in wars. I mean, if I take, for instance, the war in Bosnia, giving you the daily events, listing factually what happened, telling you what the UN said about Srebrenica. And I think that um, because of that, and because governments that wage war have a, such a vested interest in maintaining the image of war and disseminating their own propaganda, we can give to the public glimpses of what war is, but not in any real or concerted way. Um, so, I mean, in many ways, my book was an anti-memoir. I did not write, want to write a book about how brave war correspondents are, and I've read enough of those. Um, I do think the profession is valid, but I wanted to show the dark side of what we do and how so much of the press um, fails to put any distance between them and the military machine that they're covering. There are great war reporters and photographers, um, but they're very few and far between. Uh, usually, by the way, they're the ones who have a lot of experience, um, partly because they have the courage to break free from those units and do the kind of independent reporting that begins to expose war for what it is. I have a handful of very fine questions, but we have time for only one more with a short answer. Your talk leaves me feeling that I've been hit by a tidal wave of despair. Where is the hope? Will love ultimately be the stronger force? How can the toxin of war be cleansed from all our systems. I had a great theology professor who once told me that faith was an embarrassment for an intellectual. Um, you have faith. You have faith. Um, you know, you can't be saved by what you can do. And we had to learn this, for instance, uh, in the war in El Salvador or Kosovo, where armed units would go in, uh, massacre and kill people. We would go in at great risk. To, to these villages and roads were often blocked to cover it. And uh, we knew that when we woke up the next morning, it would happen again. Uh, the war, the siege of Sarajevo took three and a half years before anyone did anything. Forty-five foreign reporters were killed in the city. I think everyone felt that what was happening there was a crime against humanity, and they were right. And they wanted the world to wake up. Um, I think in the end, um, you have to be saved by what you can do on a daily basis and find worth in perhaps what the rest of the world considers minutiae or irrelevancy, but which for you took great effort and risk. And, and, and then you just have to trust because um, in many parts of the world, especially the parts of the world that I've been, been in, um, it looks bleak and dark and there is a lot of despair, but Despair leads to cynicism, which leads to inaction. And um, cynicism is a very dangerous, very dangerous quality that we must all fight against. Thank you. Thank you, Chris Hedges.